Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Alex Coos. I'm Keith the Greater. I'm Keith the Lesser. <laughs> and welcome to a slightly different take on Inside the List Building Studio. I'm here joined by the current U.S. Master, Keith Conroy, and frequent uh, second place finisher, <laughs> elf player, and drunkard from Nashville, Keith and, Randall. And reigning Masters countercharger. Oh, that's there you go. The man of the people. Yes. <laughs> We're going to do a clash of Keith's, Keith of War, list building studio episode today where we take a little high-level look at the changes from Clash of Kings from the perspective of two skilled players and myself and kind of go through their lists and how they've changed. We're going to go through their list-building philosophy briefly and then how they see the Clash of Kings updates affecting you know, their armies and how their playstyle going forward in the next year. As is tradition, we're going to do our hobby updates. So Keith... What have you been up to uh, hobby-wise lately? <laughs> well, hobby-wise, I have been working on my Dwarf Armada fleet. Um, I'm painting it in the same colors as my dwarves that match on the tabletop. So it's the uh, silver and gold and blue, which is also uh, my family crest, uh, which we'll get into that a little bit later. And this episode is brought to you by copious amounts of bourbon. So get ready for some hot takes and overreactions and a lot of bad Keith puns. So welcome, everyone. <laughs> Bourbon, the Keith way. It's true. I'm working on Manticifying my elves, so I have a whole bunch of Dracons. I've been kitbashing them a little bit. I don't. I mean, I like the, the model generally, but I've been adding some longer lances and more ridiculous helmets. And then I've been putting together some Gladestalkers for what is now obvious reasons. I've been doing some blue stuff molds for saddles and uh, chain mail for my honor guard. So pretty excited for that. I've got my uh, winged Aerles, uh undercoated ready for painting. So I think I got a lot of fun models after painting up like 80 foot guard. So I'm <laughs> on to like the, the fun stuff, part of my League of Rodia army. So hopefully the, I'll have a usable 2000 points in a month or two and then kind of you know build that out over the next couple of months for uh, my March of Death tournament here in uh, at the beginning of March. You mixing up some yellow paints, getting that get color right. Yes, it's a lot of layers. It's a lot of layers. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough color for sure. Uh, I got I got a good process now. Although I will say like every batch is a slightly different process. So I think it came out pretty good. Although I took it to I took what I had done painted to king beyond the wall to look at it like under tournament lighting because it's one of the, com the common venues we use and it's very different than like my two ultra bright desk lamps mm -hmm. so it's not as glow in the dark i guess my in the photos i take at my desk they're very it's very vibrant in the tournament lighting it's a little understated 
So I'm not sure if I'm going to punch it up or leave it understated. I'm going to see how it looks once I get the wolves and ravens painted up and see how it looks as an army and see if I want to up the contrast or like the real the yellowness of it. So, or you could just upgrade all the lighting in your venue. <laughs> Cheaper That's process. True. Much less yeah, time. Just, just buy a few hundred LED light bulbs. Get <laughs> in there. You're saving the environment. There yes. It is. Absolutely. They, I'm sure like the venue's been there for probably 70 years. So I'm not sure the lighting has been upgraded that much. So it's probably, <laughs> you probably made a good, make a good point. So I mentioned King March of Death, which is going to be our next two day event up here in Canada uh, in Hamilton at the beginning of March, obviously, hence the name. That's my announcement for the near future. How about you, Keith? Uh, sometime in January or February, uh, look for updates this winter from Jesse B and I for the Pizza Jesus Invitational. It'll be a one-day, three-game charity tournament. Um, last year, we earned $10,000 that went to bereavement costs and um, funds for the family of uh, late Jesse Cornwall. And so we're looking again, this time with the donations going to the Humane Society and local shelters in West Virginia. So stay tuned for that and hope to see everybody there. I'm looking forward to that. I got, I just missed the podium last time. I got fourth. Yeah, so we were good that way. I know. I know. <laughs> I was like just one or not even a point off the top table for like the last two games for some somehow. But uh, we'll blame tabletop to you. But you yeah. could host an episode of Countercharge if you're lucky. Yes. Uh, how about you, Keith? I got no announcements. You know, we're just gearing things back up, and it's enjoyable to get out and see people again and uh, get back to a little bit of normalcy. Just to give our listeners an overview of who they're listening to today, who is Keith? Well, <laughs> Keith Conroy is from Connecticut. I'm a member of the Unplugged Gamers. Um, started playing back in the days of Warhammer Fantasy, and then even before that, playing War Machine Hordes, Dystopian Wars, Battletech, X-Wing Armada. I kind of ran the gambit with friends and family. First started way back when I was younger, reading the 6th edition book in Borders Books and Music, because um, my local library wouldn't stock it, so I'd go in there and just look at the pages and read. And because we hadn't bought any of the models yet, because they were expensive, uh, my brothers and I would cut out little... 20 by 20 and 25 by 25 pieces of paper and play on the floor and play the rules completely wrong and end up getting into fights. And I'm a member of the Unplugged Gamers out of New England. So, who is Keith? Keith Randall is a wargamer down in Nashville. I probably started way back when, just when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine playing Hero Quest. And then somehow I got a copy of, I think it was called Battle Masters or something, the Hexagon game, mm-hmm. where you had you know cannons and slotted units, um, and played that a handful of times. Around junior high, I got into 40K, as, as many people do, and played Ridiculous Orcs and on the floor, and who had mats and who painted their models. Um, kind of put that away in college. Then when I came down to Nashville for grad school, picked up Fantasy Battles, played that through most of 8th, end of 7th, most of 8th, and then with the split, came over to Kings of War, and I've been playing mostly Elves with one notable foray into other armies when I was frustrated with 3rd edition, but have been 
podiuming, but not winning a lot of tournaments uh, over the last five or six years to the point where uh, I like to think it's a running joke that I'm a part of, but I, but I might not be a part of it. I might just be suffering. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of is a nice segue into uh, what are your Kings of War credentials? Why, why do listeners, why should they care about what you say? Well, I've been playing Kings of War since the Great Divide after the end times. Um, I am the 2021 U.S. Master, um, a forum moderator for the Gathering of the Herd page. This one's for you, Corey Reynolds, the 2014 Crossroads Best General. (laughs) And most importantly, I am half of the winningest name in all of Kings of War. Thank you, Brenton. (laughs) I play Herd, Imperial Dwarfs, and Night Stalkers. And you, Keith? I am a constant UB junkie uh, after being introduced to playing by email with by the Keith the Greater. I've played Elves since the Great Divide, usually win more than I lose. Often am uh, second or third place down here in uh, the southeast. And I don't know, I have a voice and an opinion, and I like yep. to think that I'm... Uh, coherent when i'm not three sheets to the wind so if there's any reason to listen to me that probably f- fills it out well you weren't that wrong when you well, were i like, to think, three I pre- sheets to- I like to think i was prescient i feel like yeah a lot of my my um <clears throat> how can we put this whining uh was fixed over the last couple revisions to third edition so i do yeah. think i had nothing to do with that but i at least predicted it <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, elves, elves were in a weird place at the beginning of third, and we're about to get into some of the details of how they are in a much better place. And they're an important part of a potentially healthier meta ecosystem. Hard agree, for sure. Very sure. Very true. So now that we know everyone here and everyone knows why they should be listening, why are we here today, Keith? We thought it was, we were talking, we have, uh, among many others, uh, a Facebook chat, and we were talking about developing new lists in a new cock meta there's there's new changes every year which is something that's that's helpful and and beneficial for the game and it opens up opportunities for competitive play and hobby players to reevaluate their lists and we thought it'd be interesting to take general principles about list building that apply during the change in the meta and how you can and, and discuss how at least we review rule changes and new units and new spells to develop our lists, which which we'd like to think have been somewhat successful in prior editions, and try to give an insight to countercharge listeners when they're reviewing a Clash of Kings meta change and their own lists and how they should focus on developing the new hot competitive list that you want to show up with as early as possible on the new edition. Yeah, and also just how to adapt to the other new lists, like how to make your list better and then how to like anticipate what other lists are going to be doing. Absolutely. Go Keeping ahead. score at home, Keith Randall did charge his uh, full legal fees to write that. They have me on retainer, so just pulling it out of the monthly payment. Yes. Works, that works. So for those... <laughs> For those keeping track, what that means is we're going to give you a bunch of gross overreactions uh, <laughs> without having any games or without having seen the meta as a whole. So here's a lot of overstatements, and if you don't like it, oh well. 
Yeah, this is our name is better than yours. <laughs> this is a week one analysis, so take it with a grain of salt and come back next in six months and laugh. Well, yes. and this is this is a particular. It's an interesting time to be reviewing the meta because, with the exception of a set number of players, which which I wasn't one of, you're just trying to review how the meta is changing from the book, from the rules, from your experience, both with your own army and how it matches up to other armies. To get a jump on that meta, uh, which is obviously constantly evolving, but to have the ability and the tools to analyze the meta at this point is a valuable skill where in seven months it will have developed to a point where it's a lot more settled. And if you are mm-hmm. able to get out ahead and analyze the meta and what, where you think the meta is going to be and predict it with some degree of correctness early – that does provide a competitive edge, and you know, obviously, it's not the the only thing reason we play this game. But at least for Keith and I, that's a lot of our enjoyment is finding that competitive edge and applying the new meta to create lists that can be effective from from, sure. from jump. So there are many people that can you know grind their way to a list that they find effective, and that is a time honored, time tested skill. Um, but what we wanted to talk about here was just trying to, to math hammer it or intellectual kings of war uh, to see if, if there's a better way to approach it early before things get settled uh, to help people get a running start. Yeah, a meta analysis framework. Yep. I like it, which is why we're, we're doing the episode. Starting off, are there any foundations of list building like that guide your how you review potential meta shifts as the new Clash of Kings comes out? Like, is there any, like, is there a set process that you have or is it kind of just take it all in at once and then go back and figure out what jumps out at you? I think I try to take it all in at once and then see what jumps out, right? So giving it the first couple read-throughs, you're like, okay, here's the thing that got the most rules. And you look at standout individual units. Um, and then it takes a while, like Keith was saying earlier, a couple months to see, okay, now how do these pieces fit in the whole? And are they good enough to make a mediocre to bad army that much better because a couple units have improved? Um, so we can point out and we will point out some of the best units in our opinions that were improved and you know, have that op label quote unquote uh but it will take some time to figure out just how they affect the armies and the meta as a whole and you can evaluate general list list building stratagem and principles and just take them piece by piece which we're going to walk through here in a moment and consider how did does the change to general rules affect this element of list building how does the change to specific units specific armies is there an army that just had no real effective chaff and now they have something that's mind-blowingly good or just fits so well with that army that it has to become part of the army? Uh, so if, as long as you, if you're breaking list building down into elements, you can turn around and apply that to reviewing the changes both as a whole and individually under each of those elements and try to create an idea of how the meta is shifting around you. So we're going to break it down into little sections as we go through like what we see as what changed or what will be improved or different going into this new Clash of Kings season. Starting off, we're going to talk about chaff. So how do you think chaff is going to be affected by these changes? 
going into 2022? So I think that the chaff will be affected. So first off, for competitive play, use of chaff is something that really elevates your play to that higher level. Shout out one of our local players, Greg Person, since including Red Goblin Scouts in his list, plays them expertly and has a really, really, it lets you get away with less hammers and more support and able to play the scenario better. Um, And knowing when to throw them away and when to hold them back is something that takes people a long time to realize, but once you get, you know, it pays dividends in the end. I think that we're going to see, so knee-jerk reaction, Boomstick was nerfed. It went down to just adding two for 25 points as opposed to three. So you would think that that would lessen the lightning bolt. However, I believe that certain armies, specifically elves and uh, forces of the abyss that we're going to talk about later, are getting more shooting. So to me, that really ups the um, fearless chaff and how important they are. So ember sprites, tidal swarms, um, stealthy chaff, such as the um, the snow foxes, um, phantoms troops will become incredibly popular because, you know, you either want your chaff to complete its role or to die, right? There's nothing worse than a wavered piece of chaff, you know, adding insult to injury if it's blocking your own charge and can't get out of the way. So I think that we'll see a little bit more fearless chaff and it'll be important to navigate this new realm of shooting that we're going to enter. I think that's dead on. I think, you know, I, I obviously come to use a lot of this stuff from an elven perspective. And early on in third, you saw people not needing to protect their chaff as significantly as late second, just because there wasn't a ton of efficient shooting. Um, you might have seen uh, Lightning Bolt Mage with, you know, three added as a boomstick. But if you have three or four pieces of chaff, you didn't have to spend time protecting that chaff to make sure it did its role, either died when it was supposed to and didn't die in your backfield or lived to the end of the game to just grab an objective. So I do think it's clear in this current, this this new Clash of Kings, that there is more effective, efficient shooting. A lot of that came out in Halpies with taking away some of the irregular shooting units, flame bearers, heart piercers, who are both real, still really good. Um, but then there were some ob- more obvious changes to, you know, as, as Alex kind of mentioned earlier, reintroduce the wolves into to Yellowstone with four up shooting archers and then making Glade Stalkers an even more effective, cost effective shooting unit. So you have to, when you're developing your chaff list now, approach the field with an understanding that there might be two or three games that you can't just stick your chaff piece right in front of your hammer and say, it's going to be there until we're, we're grinding. You know, you have to spend more time and more thought and list construction on where is the chaff going to go. You know, Red Goblin Scouts are a great example. They're height two and the Ogres are height two. So you don't have to stick them out front because they're faster and they can't be shot over the Ogres. Um, so you have to sort of figure out where you want your Red Goblin chaff, how many pieces of Red Goblins you want, um, knowing that there's probably going to be a situation in a field that has more efficient shooting where your chaff's just going to melt faster uh, so you need to consider, do I need to take more? Um, do I need to find out a way to, I mean, am I focusing on, like Keith Conroy said, fearless chaff? Or am I spending just more time protecting my chaff so it can do its function? Yeah, I think with what you're talking about with efficient shooting is spot on. But the addition of like, well, three armies, all three elf armies have effective 24-inch shooting now, yeah, which yeah. gives you that first-turn shooting, you know, you know quote-unquote alpha style. Yeah. Not not quite what it was in second edition, but now, like with flame bearers and heart piercers, 
they couldn't get you on turn right. one if they went right. first. Now, those three armies can very effectively put out a lot of hurt on turn one. Right. No, no matter what, unless you you know deploy to counter that, but then you're deploying quite a bit back because Glade Stalkers are all scouting. Well, and then you're, you're either turning the clock back on the time that you get to engage your enemy by starting back further, or you have to recognize and construct your list knowing that you're going to take some pinpricks from jump, yeah. um, which affects should affect how chaff is used and deployed and considered in your list building. Yeah, I think there's going to be a big effect, even just beyond chaff. Like anything speed six or slower is going to be yeah. drastically different. Uh, the effectiveness will be drastically different with this, in the especially play. if they're especially if they're defense four or lower. Yes, we talk about chaff, but ultimately. Efficient shooting is coming back, and that's going to be something everyone's going to have to take into account in list yep. building. How do you think these new changes in overall are going to affect like the number of drops? Like, do you think? I think initially drops are going to lower um, and decrease for the first couple games. And when people come to the table, uh, you're going to see a lower than average amount of army drops. I think that's going to be for two reasons. One, people are going to want to try the new spells. So even just for the first couple of fun games, you're going to have two like kitted out casters that have scorched earth and alchemist curse and you know bark skin and all these great things and then second people are going to want to bring their titans and their giants another thing you know dust them off the shelves and bring them back and i think that'll be awesome but i do think that eventually it'll come around as you know people try that in competitive scenes and realize that the unit strength one and the amount of points that you're paying for an individual caster in certain armies, they'll realize that they, they need more scoring units, right? And that they need more unit strength and things will kind of shift back to what they were pre-cock. I think some of the um, spells will stay. I think specifically goblins and other um, cheap chassis casters, right? That don't have a lot of expensive built-in spells in them already that can just take Alchemist Curse and Bark Skin and, you know, a bunch of wizards for under 90 points. Um, will really benefit from that, and they'll keep the individuals, but because they're cheap anyway, it's not going to affect their average army drop. But some of the elite armies, um, we'll try them. You know, Northern Alliance comes to mind, too. Like, they have expensive casters already, so they'll probably just take normally what they have. Yeah, and I feel like some of what always limited the trash meta, for lack of a better term, was this efficient shooting. A counter to shooting can be an alpha list, uh, so there might be a little bit of the shift on the Rock, Paper, Scissors game for a little while. Um, but I, I agree. I do think, I don't know if drops are going to change significantly once things settle out. There, there's certainly tons of trains of thought on, you know, you want everything to score. And I don't think that's necessarily going to change, uh, especially with the access to some scoring wizards. I think drops is, is, is going to kind of be a wash, but I, I tend to agree that early on you might see some more individuals and you might see individuals that are there to hunt individuals, um, mm-hmm. because if there is a you know a, a bonanza of wizards that are just causing stupid amounts of damage, you you can't just let them wander around, and you you might need something that targets them specifically. And I think going into our next, um, so taking that point that you just made and going into our next topic of conversation, which is combat groups, I think in any list building coming up pre well post cock. 
every list needs to answer the question of how am I going to deal with individuals after these changes? Because while I think that expensive casters may be something of a rarity, there will absolutely be casters who have Alchemist Curse or running around with Scorched Earth or some of these other powerful spells that are going to be auto-include in some armies. Or some armies that are lucky that have Warlocks and Abyssal Warlocks, um, they get both. They get a scoring unit and they get um, to cast. Um, but you'll have to answer the question. So if you're building a list, what are you going to do about individuals? And like you said before, is it going to be an individual that's going to hunt in other individuals? Are you going to have flying chaff that can go after them? Are you going to have, for example, mind screeches or abyssal fiends or something that can shoot or breathe over to get those pesky individuals that are hiding in between units? Um, but whatever you decide in your specific list, that's going to be the big question that you're going to have to answer because Clash of Kings is bringing a ton of auras and a ton of synergy, and individuals are going to be a very important part. They'll still be cheap, but you'll see a lot of individuals running with a at least one aura and one of the new spells, and you'll have to have an answer for that because it'll be very prevalent and very powerful. Well, it's not just wizards, too. I mean, we have engineers now with you know piercing two shots. It's ogre okay. sergeants, order of the hawk people. Um, so it's not just a wizard coven anymore. It's there's going to be a lot and probably a lot more support pieces, which yeah. you know third has sort of developed this, this support or aspect to the game, which is now fully being realized. So having those people in your army both as part of your combat groups and then an answer to your opponents as a separate combat group is, is definitely going to be something that you need yeah. to be considering. Yeah, and it's not just individuals. Like, you, like you're saying, support, a lot of support wizards are large infantry or warlocks, um, ogre warlocks, you know, kingdoms of men, pegasus wizards, unicorns, unicorns. you know, and then you have the, the individuals as well, but then you have the shooting individuals or shooting characters that are, you know, basically combat individuals that have a modified lightning bolt now right and then you always have bangets which are a handful and are still yes. going to be a handful that kind of super mobile hard to get to unit is going to be something you need to be taken into consideration and those individuals you know they just present such a like do i really want to dedicate a combat unit to attacking an individual or something you know you're like too cheap to really merit somebody attacking you and that's why some of these trash metalists have it so good. It's like, okay, take your 200-point unit, and you know you can kill a 70-point unit this turn. Like, I still benefit because you, you know, right? You have six to go after yeah. this than something else. You have yeah, six turns to kill my rabble, and if you're killing bangets, thank you. Yeah, and now with the new with the new spells, you have a lot of low-cost, high well potential output units. Mm-hmm. If gone unchecked. Yes. And you brought up a really good point too, Keith, earlier when you said support units in general. And I think that um, some of the best new units we're going to see, for example, the Stormcaller Shrine, um, is a pure support piece. But man, does it have great synergy and good utility in the unit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, with the it's like a super tangle. It's amazing. Scoring unit too, and also one of those like the monolith. Do you really want to dedicate a ton of time to killing it? Yep. Because it's not a ton of points, and it it's not a war engine, so you're not tripling your attacks. So yeah. just like it's the individual. defense five and fearless, yep. yeah. So that kind of leads us into the, our next topic, like Keith alluded to, combat groups. So support characters, 
that are going to be working with units as like a battle group. But as Clash of Kings has kind of taken full advantage of some keywords and new auras and, and formations now, how do you think this is going to be changing things? It's a positive, and it also is can be limiting, right? So there are plenty of players who do very well by creating combat groups, and you know these units always support those units. They go together. They have everything they need to clear chaff and get in there and do damage. And now on top of that, you throw, well, here this support unit has an aura or a spell or an, some effect on the formation it was chosen with. That kind of means it has to be with this group to be effective. So you're getting extra benefit out of some of these aura support groups or support units, but you're also limiting your flexibility when you're deploying. So you have to take that into consideration that, you know, maybe you want more drops if your opponent knows that like these four units are going together because you you know, if they don't, you're not getting the utility out of them. So you want more out there to put out first so you can have your super effective four or five units where you want them when you want them across from what you want them across Uh, so it's just an extra consideration um, both when you're deploying against someone who has combat groups and when you're creating those combat groups right so then your whole army becomes like a support piece Mm -hmm. for the combat group because you've invested you know 400 points or whatever into this and it could be like six or seven hundred points. Yeah, it like could be a lot with a formation. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, because like you look at the brother mark formation, you got a dragon and two regiments, or you know some. Right. Yeah. It's or not you know, no, there's a lot of lot of high value formations. So then you have to think about how the rest of your army is going to support that formation to actually get value from it. Not to say that the formations aren't good, because a lot of them really are, but you have to think about that going into it, and you can't just slot them in easily because they're going to be a big chunk of points. Well, I think the the King's Champion is a really good example of this thing. King's Champion, really tough, mighty individual, bunch of attacks, uh, is doing all sorts of benefits just on on his own, but he has a Fury Aura for Kindred. And Kindred, you have to look closely and realize that Kindred aren't Palace Guard, so you know that that King's Champion is going to be setting up next to your Tall Spears, your Kindred Warriors, or those units that are going to benefit from the Kindred Fury. And Elf units aren't cheap. I mean, Kindred Warriors are a little bit cheap, but Tall Spears out the box are 230 points, and you probably want an item on them. So you're adding that 100-some point character, and now you are get 500 points that your opponent knows exactly where it's going to go. So right. you have to take that in consideration that like you're going to line this, this kick-butt formation across from something that may or may not know how to deal with it, so your other support pieces then have to flip that script on what's across from your formation so it can then go do what it wants to do. Right. Yeah, it could telegraphs. Like once you put one of the one of the pieces down, your opponent will generally know where the the other pieces of the puzzle of that group will go down. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is why things like the battle shrine or which has just a general aura um, is just has so much more utility because was it going to go next to your honor guard? Is it going to go next to your foot guard? Is it where? Where's it going to go? I don't know. Right. Um, because it's a general aura. But now that we're sort of, with the exception of inspiring, we're sort of confining auras. It's limiting, but also, you know, also you benefit from it. Right. Auras are now like the new conditional inspiring. Um, so like tinker keywords and other keywords within auras that only affect certain units. 
And diving deeper into what you mentioned about um, inspiring, so perhaps the biggest change is a change of Clash of Kings that we've seen so far and will have the most immediate impact is inspiring. So other than inspiring self, there's no longer conditional inspiring. Everything inspires anything else in your army. So what we talked about and the first thing that came to our minds was warlocks, warlocks, warlocks. Ogre warlocks have been everywhere in the Northeast medicine, piloted by some really talented generals. So we've seen ogres popping up everywhere in our meta. And so the first thing that comes to mind for us is that the warlock, which only inspired berserkers before, now inspires everything. So I think that this is going to make an immediate impact on a lot of list building because certain things like the normal flag bearer, flag guy, uh, you won't see anymore. So hot take. You heard it here first, folks. You will see more flag guys as allies than you will see in ogre lists because yeah. now there's not really a reason to take them. Now that warlocks inspire, you can take them with all the siege breakers that you want, and bam, you're good to go. Yeah, well, the, so, the big drawbacks to warlocks and berserker bullies was conditional inspiring. So now those two individ- like those two units supersede any need for the ASB. Poor yep. flag guy. Poor flag yeah. guy. Some of them you just won't need in certain armies anymore because you only took it because it was inspiring. Mm-hmm. But now you have the significantly better choice, like Warlocks. So we'll be seeing a ton of those and some models we won't see again. So Berserker Brock Lords, already a great unit, just got better um, right out of the box. The Lycanus we'll see more. More Axeman Splitter, Seductresses. All of these come to mind as utility pieces that get an instant um, boost right out of the gate. Yeah, huge benefit from those. They're, like, those ones are already almost auto-include characters, and now their utility just goes up, and it's, they're even better. So that's one of the largest overall changes that we're going to see in the meta, is just like almost every army benefits some, like we said, a, a bit more than others. So with the new Clash of Kings, we're going to have new magical artifacts. Also, we'll have the same old ones, and then but we'll have new situations that may make them better. So what do you guys think about the new artifacts and how artifacts in general are going to be affected going into this Clash of Kings? So looking at the list right now, some of the ones that jump out to me, right? The Amulet of the Fireheart is back, and I think that'll be really important because that was super useful. And um, the Helm of the Drunken Ram, I like how it's balanced now and gives like sort of a drawback to it. Um, so depending on your meta and the train placement, um, it could be another popular choice. I think the standout one that I see when I take a look just at a cursory glance, I think the Wingbane Cloak is going to be incredibly popular. I think it's priced really well at 10 points, and getting ensnare against units with the Fly Special Rule is invaluable. Um, I think it's great for backline support casters. I think it's a great 10 points already was a really good um, point price, and there's a lot of good items competing for it already at the 10 points, and I think that we'll see that. Shroud of the Saint and the Boomstick are going to affect a lot of lists, and I think while you may look at it the first time and say, oh, it's only going down by one point, for a lot of armies out there, that one point is a big deal. So you do save some points, but I think that we'll see a lot less Shroud of the Saint and Boomstick specifically, as there's better options and other things to uh, get instead. Yeah, uh-huh. I think with that one, that 30 points that you used to spend is probably going to be better spent on a new spell yeah. in a lot of cases, because a lot of the new spells are quite powerful. Well, it's also inspiring talisman is not nearly as use, as necessary now, too, because there's more access to inspiring, so that's 20-ish points you could spend on 
a new spell or you know the the changes to the individual only artifacts are interesting and i think they're going to amp up the early potential individual adoption there's some slayer stuff there's some rampage stuff uh, that, that's individual only and i think that will fade again because you know this is a game of objectives so individuals can only do so much um, with some handful of exceptions but you know i think we're gonna we're, there's gonna be some winners and losers and i think we've kind of identified where we think that is now but some of the like super popular ones from from editions past, like the Spirey token and the Boomstick and and Shroud, might end up being losers because um, it's ten points per extra lightning bolt is is nice. Twelve and a half changes the analysis a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, twenty five points gets you a new spell. You could get Alchemist Curse, I think, level one. You sure. Get, uh, you could get the uh, Scorched Earth. What a great spell. So that's coming, that's coming from a herd player. Like that's kind yeah. of so with with that, let's talk about the spells. So these are gonna we have new artifacts and we have new spells. So these are gonna shift things a lot. I think they're small changes, you know, points wise. But I think ultimately, I think they're gonna have a big effect on how some armies play or really amp up the strengths of certain armies. What do you think, Keith? I mean, again, I can think there's winners and losers here. Certainly cheap armies with cheap casters. Keith Conroy mentioned this earlier. Our big winners, just having multiple casters to have a, you know, you, you never want more than two spells on a caster because then they're wasting points sitting on, their, sitting on their ass not casting one of their spells. So if you have three dedicated casters doing different things, that could certainly uh, change the analysis. And honestly, with the, the caster level and coming... You know, without a built-in spell, Archmages uh, are also big winners with the new built-in spells. Yeah, I kind of would have liked to see, and maybe we'll see it in a different edition um, or upcoming cock, that more of like a Build-A-Bear style caster where they're not coming in with built-in spells, but rather they're just like a blank slate and then you can add on. So, for example, with a Druid, I really would like to try the Celestial, um, Celestial Restoration, but I already have Heal too. Right, and I'm already paying, you know, kind of for those points mm-hmm. built in, and same with other casters who would have built-in spells. So, if you could save the points off the top and then reinvest it with like a just a selection of what to add on to, I think we would see more variety in spells. But for some people, like, well, I already am paying for lightning bolt four or five, you know, I might as well just go along with that and lean yeah. into it it discourages and like and like you were saying you can only cast one spell per turn unless you have the amulet so taking more than two spells is usually a waste we have all these new options but you can still only cast one per turn so mm-hmm. it's got to be you have some restraint and like you can't build a super toolbox wizard because that's going to be 200 points and then Maybe someone's going to be doubling down on some individual hunting and you're going to lose that very quickly. Or there's going to be a hex three across the board that's just going to shut it down. Everyone getting hex is big. Yeah. Yep. Everyone get hex. Everyone get something with the trickster's wand because you're you're going to need it this edition. Yeah. Um, Double hex won't be out of place in certain areas, I don't think. Yeah. And there's that built-in cost, too, when you talk about wanting to outfit a caster or wizard. So if I'm taking something like a combat-oriented spell like Scorched Earth or Host Shadow Beast, which you can basically build a list around, 
you're going to want to like mount the caster because you're going to need to get it into specific combats and make sure that you're always there around it. And I think we're going to find that while they look amazing coming right out of the book, once we start trying to make lists with them, those points are going to add up really quickly. I think it's going to, like, the, the wheat will be separated from the chaff pretty quickly when people start realizing a lot of these spells <laughs> are still on two or three dice. So, you know, you're going to have to take the Conjuring Staff to really get a reliable cast out of the two dice spells. If you can, if it even affects them, if they're not. Yeah, they're not. if it's not a, if it's not a unique spell, and then then you're going to want the three dice one, and then things get expensive. So, I think at thirty or forty points, when you're you know adding the spell caster level and the spell, it's going to have to be very effective, like right. cons- consistently effective, and especially if you're a competitive player over a five game tournament, it's going to have to be important, like for three games, you think. Yeah for it to be worth 40 points and you're going to ask yourself is this more important or more useful than adding in nimble or brew of strength um onto a combat unit and Mm -hmm. sometimes the as cool as it may be like sometimes the answer will be no and it's just much better to do what the game is about and that's killing your opponent stuff and claiming objectives and then maybe you just like okay maybe defaulting to just plus two lightning bolt for 25 points is still a good idea it's you know it's still not super expensive and it just doubles down on what the wizard already has so i think the next few months are going to be interesting to see what shakes out and what sticks i think you know i think obviously scorched earth and alchemist curse are look like winners Mm -hmm. out of the gate yeah, I love Barkskin, too. What a cool spell. And you can definitely tell that they put a lot of good time and a lot of creativity into these spells. And I think that that's yeah. one area where the book really shines, is that there's a lot of variety that's well-written, mm-hmm. um, and they're going to be a lot of fun to use. Uh, I like this. I like Barkskin because it's like you can put it on cheap hordes of like trash, like wretches or zombies or scarecrows, but it also will help. You know, berserker units get across the yeah. board. They have like defense three, like spirit walkers or half elf berserkers trying to get you know through the hail of shooting that Keith will be you know providing us. <laughs> or in so, snares, you know, like yeah, snares are never gonna die if you can just keep bar skinning them. Yeah, if you can put like three or four tokens on a, a horde of ensnares, like good luck. And while spell ward is awesome, and I think that we will see night stalker builds that will kind of gravitate around that i think that the fact that spell ward also hinders your ability to cast on your own units i don't mm-hmm. know if we'll see the ban the banner of abbotshire as much as we think that we will and if we do yeah. it's going to be on a dedicated flank it's going to be well like you said dedicated battle group where you like you know that you don't need a support caster on that side well and the rift weavers too giving an aura of yes of spell ward it's like okay that's great but i also like to bane chant my reapers sometimes Right, and I have I have the planner apparition, which is one of the best like heal support units in the game. Right, so heal seven isn't or what isn't as great when it's uh, on fives, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, was... well then there's there's the halfling uh, sar- uh, sergeant in Rodia. He's got a spell ward aura, but that, mm-hmm. again, like then you're not bane chanting, right? Mm-hmm. So he's hanging out with the honor guard because they don't necessarily need a bane chant. Maybe. <laughs> I also think we'd be remiss in saying, you know, we've talked a lot about efficient shooting, but everyone has access to Veil of Shadows now. So it's um, true. as situational as that was in the previous edition, you know, it only wor- it will fail one out of every four times you cast it. If you don't go first, you don't get it the first turn. Same token, 
if efficient shooting becomes an issue, that could that could help moderate that, especially if you're yeah. sitting with Fail of Shadows and lots of Defense 5, Defense 6 guys. Right. Yeah, like in the right build, it can really either shore up a weakness or really play up a strength. Because I think there are some changes for some armies that make that Defense 6 builds you know, yeah. even better this, this round. So my favorite thing in looking at these changes is that for every increase that they gave across the board, so now you know there's more access to Pathfinder across armies, specifically free dwarfs. There's more access to Defense Six. That's quality, you know, with monsters being able to uh, gain Rampage and Slayer and special rules and go down in points. For every benefit that they gave to the major armies. They also crafted spells and items to combat that, and I think that that might be something that might go unnoticed through the first read-through, but I think it was really purposefully done, and I want to give a special shout-out to the Rules Committee for doing that, because I think that while we will do overreactions to some of these big units that are getting points decreases and special rules, as we are supposed to do as Wargamers, I think they did a really nice job of, for every big rule, also presenting a counterpoint or a spell, you know, Alchemist Curse or Scorched Earth or, you know, a way to combat that. And I think that was really well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot more ca- for every new rule, there's counterplay and not just one thing. There's multiple avenues of counterplay for, for every edition. Like Slayer is quite abundant, but, you know, yeah. Titans are also cheaper and better. So. And I wonder if we'll see Slayer-themed armies, you know, with Ogres going to be very popular and with Northern Alliance already having cavalry heroes. I I, I would say at least in one per region, there will be someone who's like, you know what, I'm going to make a Slayer army, and they are going to mow the lawn (laughs) with Ogres and uh, other large infantry-based, you know, lichens, werewolves, uh, everything else that gets thrown at them. Yeah, I think that's something you have to consider now. It, It may not be something that's going to win the weekend but someone's going to bring it and you might have to actually face it you can't you can't bank on just being able to like roll through things you might actually have to have a strategy to deal with that so with that said about spells and some items we talked about drops but do you think unit strength is going to be affected by these updates i mean unit strength is going to continue to be important a lot of what they did is they made low unit strength units more economical. You know, you see a lot of Titans with added attacks with Slayer or Rampage. I don't think that's going to change the penalty for taking a low unit strength unit, especially when they're pretty expensive. Um, I do think Clay Stalker's going to unit strength 3 is pretty big. Changed in point value, and their point per unit strength went down a little bit, which is going to help. I think generally unit strength will still stay in this, the range you see it now uh, prior to the change. Your point about you know the low unit strength, um, single unit strength monsters and titans gaining utility is good. But like yeah, you're not the unit strength total won't change. It's just they might be a little bit more effective in their role. But I think the biggest unit strength change too was between editions when you had regiments going to unit strength three. And poor, it's going to unit strength four. So that change um, just was a tax on low unit strength units. And I don't think that's that's been... I mean, I think it's been helped, um, but I don't think like a dedicated monster mash is is quite back yet. 
Yeah, I think yeah, infantry hordes going to unit strength four, cavalry hordes. That's it's huge because like it it just skews things higher for those armies. Especially in like pseudo trash armies where like a hundred point shield wall is unit strength three. Yes. So you could put crap ton of unit strength on the table and just say, can you kill all of this in time? We've you know touched on formations a little bit when we were talking about battle groups, but how do you, how do we feel like these formations change the overall meta and how like do they are they going to accomplish what they set out to do like help make us take units that we wouldn't necessarily take? I think they will, um, and I think they accomplished that goal because for no other reason than most some of them are just fun the majority are fun and they get you to use units i think that the formations do accomplish their objective which is to get people to take the units for no other reason than to try the formation and get the special rules um the forces of nature one's my favorite specifically i think it bumps them up to competitive now that they have flying hammers um and their greater elementals are awesome um also, shout out to the dwarf one, which is really good too. Um, but I think that for the most part, they'll we'll mostly see them in like casual and fun games. I'm not sure I came across any that, at least in my mind, stuck out as something that would be used in a very competitive list. But I'll be happily proven wrong, and I'm sure I will. There's winners and losers, right? I mean, there's formations that that lean into what an army does well, um, that that can be added, and like thank you. Um, Brother Mark's one, Force of Nature is probably one. Uh, the Elven formation with a couple regiments of Dracon Riders and a Dracon Lord is kind of in like a middle tier. If you really want to lean in, into Alpha, that's an option. Um, but there's some there's some winners and losers, and you know I think people have already sort of kicked out some formations that are like why why is this a thing? Um, yeah. King, Kingdoms of Men comes to mind, but you know. And there's ogres, and they are ecstatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. There's just, you know, there's there's always going to be winners and losers on formations, and I think it just adds adds new spice, and I mean, obviously affects allies too, because you can't take a formation as an ally. So if a unit is functions better in the main army because it's a formation that 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 limits allies, which may or may not be beneficial for the game. And surprisingly, one of the coolest and maybe the most competitive one that I think we'll see dedicated to a list uh, would be the Rack and Slaves one, because um, I think it gives them something that they really need. It's a way to make room. Uh, let mm-hmm. me see. Out of My yeah. Way Worm, which is an awesome special rule name and uh, synergizes really well with their uh, cool chariots and their very cheap frontline. Yeah, well, it's very thematic, too. Like, it's a great... I think that's the perfect formation in my mind because it's thematic. It fits the army perfectly. It gives them a, a a rule that no other army really has, and it makes it removes one of the weaknesses of the army. It mitigates it. You know, you're talking about it earlier where your chaff wavers and just gets in the way. Like that's the worst. It's like, well, now you can just have it explode. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's great. Uh, I really, I think Rack and Slaves. You know, they were rightly so seen as a bottom tier list going into Clash of Kings. And I think they've got some help. They're still, you know, not top of the the heap, but I think they have they got the, their good build, which is still just probably singular, got a lot of help. So I think I think they'll be a lot of fun to play. But yeah, there's a there's a couple of formations that lean in to what 
some armies are already good at, which, you know, is nice because, you know, army theme, but not necessarily helping open up new avenues of play for each army. We touched on how formations will limit getting the most out of certain units as allies. How do you guys think allies will be affected with the new Clash of Kings? So I think we need to talk about the elephant in the room, specifically the two Siegebreaker-sized elephant. Because <laughs> right now we're seeing everywhere and tons of lists all across, right? It is two hordes of Siegebreakers and a flag guy. Um, and it makes a nice little addition to any list because they're compact, they're defense six, they hit like a truck, and they're inspiring. However, and we debated even bringing this up, but other people are going to discover this. We might as well at least say that we came up with it first and then judge other people um, based on that, right, is that for two hordes of Siegebreakers and now a Warlock is 575 points on the nose which fits perfectly into a 2300 list. So you're upgrading the flag guy to something that has an almost equal amount of combat output, but has higher nerve and is pumping out lightning bolt five every turn. Plus upgrades if you want to give it to them, if it's a higher point game. Um, So I think that's going to be a very popular ally package. And because it's ogres, you can fit in anything. Um, I think Kingdom of Men present interesting options because now that you have flying beasts that can get wings, every single army can now bring a winged ally. So I think the dwarfs and some of the other ones that were missing that, like, well, I need a large cav or like a flying unit that can act as a hammer. Now you can have that with Kingdoms of Men. Um, And then finally, Tortured Souls will be an incredibly popular ally choice now that they have uh, CS1. I think the fact they're fearless and only 120 points is amazing. Cause they and they unlock themselves. Oh, the regiments unlock, unlock themselves. And are they the only swarms that are more than unit strength one? Yes. Another interesting point on allies, you can now, as long as the spell is not a you know, bracket one, you can take these spells on your allies. So if you don't have enough points for your own native caster to take Scorched Earth... Take a goblin wizard and give them Scorched Earth. Um, actually, that's not a good example because they're not spellcaster level two. But you know, take a warlock, take anybody who can get you some some Scorched Earth. So you can fit in a lot more utility in your allied mages if you really want to go heavy magic too. Wait, like with you have a Kingdoms of Men, Rordia, all the that only have wizards that are caster level one. You can upgrade one of them, but that is a bracket one upgrade. So you can add a second caster level two ally or caster level three ally to get a a better version of that spell in your list. You can take heart piercers on a unicorn and take whatever spell you want. Exactly. So that's our hot take on list building general principles given the Clash of Kings changes. So we're going to get into some more specific lists. Basically, how the Keiths built their maiden voyage Clash of Kings lists going into the new, going into the brave new world of Clash of Kings 2022. Keith, since you are reigning master, we'll we'll deign to hear your (laughs) list first. Um, So how you can kind of walk us through what the the general concept of the list is and how it's going to change or how it changed given these changes in Clash of Kings. Sounds good. So a little background on the list. I first started playing Herd, right? Like every other good Warhammer fantasy battle player, I had a pile of dwarfs and a 
pile of beastmen, and they ended up being my Kings of War armies. But I wrote the background on the fluff uh, for Greg Person's shard of the Fanulian Mirror campaign that he ran in our local gaming store um, twice. We had groups of people and went through the campaign, and I played um, dwarfs with herd allies, which then spawned into a herd army. The fluff of the list is not so loosely based on read just frankly stolen um, from the Shannara series um, by Terry Brooks, uh, which were my favorites as a kid. So the coven tree, the Elkries in the book, um, you know, is a magical tree that's growing over the corpse of a fallen shining one. And so in the fluff, it was keeping the Night Stalkers away and helping hold the fabric of reality together, but was also one of the beacons that drew the Night Stalkers in it. And so that played into the theme of Greg played the Night Stalkers and would kind of fill in if somebody wasn't there. And so that was the fluff that I wrote for that was this alliance of dwarves and herd who were guarding this magical tree that was growing over the body of a shining one that was keeping the night stalkers at bay you know the original concept as well was like okay i have my dwarf army that i played in warhammer fantasy battles in eighth edition i need something that's the complete opposite and that's heard so i had like an alpha strike fast army and then i had a slow steady defense six plotting army and then some specifics about the list um Moon Pie, which I referred Moon Claws all the time, was the name of my cat. Um, and I grew up in the town, and I currently live in my town, is called Coventry. So thus, the Coventry was a very poor pun based on that. The color scheme, the purple and gold for the herd, uh, are actually the colors of my alma mater, Elmira College in New York, which is right near where uh, Crossroads is in Horsehoods, New York, uh, which Corey hosts the GT there. Um, and then for my dwarfs, uh, the heraldry is blue and yellow, and um, all of the crests that you see are actually the Conroy family crest, which is an open book, and the color scheme associated with that, which I think is important to have armies that you play and have personal connections to because it makes it a lot harder to give up on them, and you're more likely to stick with them even if they aren't always doing the best. So I developed the list over time because way back in Warhammer Fantasy, we had a local player named Noah Nathanson who played Warriors of Chaos, and he was a really good player. But what was always interesting about him is you'd walk by his table, and you couldn't tell which side of the table he started on because he'd have units everywhere. And he played really fast, objective-style lists that were kind of in the minority back in the day because everyone liked to play the giant blocks and the Death Stars. And so I really was drawn to that and was like, wow – I really want to try to play a list that also plays like that, which can redeploy and move all over and take full advantage of movement and using the battlefield to try to, you know, do movement shenanigans. And I wanted to play an army list like that one. I've played against Noah, and he carried that style forward into Kings of War with Varenger, like double Kings on Chimera, Fallen, like a lot of fast units. And yeah, he, for such an elite, like alpha style build, he would play the whole width of the table, and it was it's very difficult to play against and he was super high level player and i think it's a great style that not a lot of people do very well it definitely it takes a lot of getting used to you have to ignore that whole bloodlust of like yes i should take this charge you have to remind yourself no i like i need to wait another turn i need to position all of my things and try not to get into con combat until like turn four or five playing that style um benefited me especially during masters and um, is what i based the philosophy of the herd list behind um, for being an alpha strike list and sometimes you do need to alpha strike as quick as you can like if you're playing against goblins like travis tim or jeff o'neill but then other times you really need to position and separate your opponent's units and 
pick your battles and only go into ones you know you can win because there's not a lot of wiggle room uh, when it comes to that. So those are the concepts of my lists. My list itself... All right, so here's my new edition for Clash of Kings herd list. Coming in at 2,300 points, it is a horde of Scorch Wings uh, with Fire Oil, a horde of Spirit Walkers with Brew of Haste, three troops of Harpies, two hordes of Lycan, one with Dwarven Ale and one with Staying Stone, a regiment of four Shamblers, two Beasts of Nature, both with Wings and seven Attacks, a Great Chieftain with the Wild Charge plus one Aura and Dread, the Horn of the Great Migration, and Wings of Honey Maze. A Mounted Druid with Conjurer Staff and Bane Chant 2. And Moon Pie. So what changed going from your Master's List into this list? So my Master's List had the three Beasts of Nature. It also had a second Druid that had Shroud of the Saint and Bane Chant. And while it may seem just a small thing to go from Heal 5 to Heal 4, it's pretty big in this list. Um, and it was something I kind of hemmed and hawed about, but... I think that the individual is replaced now by this, um, which I think is the best part of the um, new herd list, is the Great Chieftain. Um, so before, you had no idea what he did. But now he has this amazing aura that gives Wild Charge plus one, as well as Dread. And because it's not like the Will Father, you are allowed to take um, an item with it. So I gave him Wings of the Honey Maze. So this is important because he can zip around 20 inches and give that additional wild charge plus one to an already alpha strike list. He's mighty, so he can act as a piece of chaff when he needs to. And he has dread, which will also helps with the alpha strike. So for 150 points, I think he gives a ton of utility, as well as being able to contribute wounds on his own with uh, five attacks at melee three and pathfinder, CS1, TC1. So I subbed him in instead of that second druid right um i did drop a beast of nature to go for the um scorch wings i think the models are awesome and i have some on pre-order the fact that they're going up i think they're one of the most improved units going up to defense four as well as gaining plus two attacks is going to be really important and in my master's games having more unit strength was something that was really important so you talk about luck being a factor in every master's win so you know Eric had talked about it. Alex, you know, and one Brad who's won before says, you know, anytime that you win, there is luck involved. And my luck specifically was we didn't play controller dominate because those are really bad for herd, but we didn't play any of those through that case. And I think that was something that was, I wouldn't have won against any of the Jeffs or Travis had we played one of those scenarios. Yeah. I think scorch rings are, I, I agree. They're one of the big winners in this Clash of Kings. And having, you know, that dual purpose unit flying around, harassing, adding a couple wounds, like, you know, either picking up some chaff, wavering chaff, or just adding one or two wounds to something that's going to get hit by a Lycan Horde that's also going to be supported by the Dread Bubble from the Great Chieftain. I think that's a really great, you know, it's a small shift, but I think it definitely adds a new wrinkle to your list. Yeah, and 14 attacks, melee 3 with Thunder's Charge 1 with a Bane Chant. In the flank, you know, that can do some serious damage and can act as another yeah. hammer. I have to respect that. And that's another fast, nimble unit that they have to keep track of, right? That's it. <laughs> a lot of lines and angles for opponents to keep track of and for me to keep track of. Well, it's an interesting oh. effect on your list, just because a lot of what your Master's List relied on was having just, just enough heal 
sort of make it there and last just a little bit longer because everybody knows herd alphalists are a little bit class hammery. So you just tempered that class just enough to get one more turn or one more unit to the enemy because of the effect to the shroud. You're kind of trading off and going more into having another unit, having a little more ner- uh, nerve on the table, a little more unit strength to try to mitigate that role that that heal mage had. It's going to be tough because not having that source of heal, you feel a little naked without it because while you turns one, two, and three, like you had mentioned, you're going to see a lot more shooting starting from turn one. And I need at least two or three turns to really get into position before I can start committing. And I have to survive the shooting before then. So who knows? That might get dropped and I might have to put in a source of heal um, and pay the premium. I love the Glade Stalker Druid or Glade Walker Druid, uh, but he's so expensive. And then he's already got heal four. So do you go up to heal six or stay with heal four? It's it's tricky. I think it's just a really unique example of of what is obviously a very effective list getting affected by such a minor change mm. um, and forcing you to adapt and, you know, recognize where the meta is going to take you. I think it's like a, it's an interesting illustration of like how Clash of Kings isn't necessarily all about nerfing and buffing units to like make different lists. It's about sl- slight changes that just make good lists have to make small changes. And then those small changes kind of cascade. So it's not just about getting your, you know, your favorite unit nerfed or getting that unit that is, you know, no one takes, making making it better. It's about just slightly shifting things. So like every year we have different lists to face and different opponents to like, you know, actually face off against. And I like that, and I think that that really speaks to the success of the Clash of Kings book is that even the small changes are having big impacts, and it's forcing me to try new things in my list. Um, which is good. And I think that a lot, I hope that a lot of people approach it with enthusiasm and say, you know, take it as not a, oh, I can't play what I used to play anymore, but more of, oh, this is better. I'm going to try new things and really invigorate their local gaming scenes. So without having played any games of this list, um, I can say what it does well is the ability to redeploy. And that was something that was really crucial for me in masters was saying like oh i don't want this flank and being able to move away from it and it uses the clock effectively because i don't have any shooting on my clock i'm not going through a shooting phase for the majority of the game so i have additional time to think of things and line up charges and think a turn in advance if i can it can push flanks really quickly and project threat so you know in games of people who aren't used to playing against herd if you give them an open flank, I think it really surprises opponents that by turn two or three, they've already crossed that flank. You know, Lycans being able yeah. to move 18 and the Beast of Nature going 20, you know, all it takes is two turns and then they're behind you or flanking you and they're on your side of the board. It presents a lot of angles and problems, um, especially right. with the height five Beasts of Nature. I know um, so- in a couple of our games that we've played on UB, play by email, it's like small openings. And you are you give I gave you a small opening and like you just leave a third of my army like over on one side of the table doing nothing, <laughs> you know. And it's like, yeah. what is how is that supposed to like it, it really isolates an overextended opponent very well. Mm-hmm. And I think when I had first started playing the list, a lot of what I fell into was this need of like I need to attack the entire army. Whereas if I'm paying all these points for speed and nimble, why not just take this half on the left flank? move it over to the middle and right and just fight there and hope I can kill everything by the time the opponent redeploys. 
Right. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But it's definitely one of those armies that double ones can really punish it because it doesn't have a lot of staying power. It struggles with grinding. Um, and if you engage too early or take chances that are like, you know, 60-40, but it doesn't go your way, then you yeah. can really pay for it because lichens are very pricey and they're defense four. So anything that can kill them at 15-17 nerve usually stands a pretty good chance at that if they're in combat. So what the list does struggle with is grinding, um, engaging too early in any lists that have high defense backed by heal. So armies that can move up in a brick um, and know how to layer their lines. So shout out to Mike Shettlemeyer and Jeff Swan. Uh, when I played Jeff in Masters, um, he did a really nice job of keeping chariots back and of keeping parts of his army back to prevent the beasts of nature and other fast elements from jumping over the lines, which is an important part of what my list does. You know, because psychologically it kind of messes with opponents and then they have to react to that and it throws them out of sorts. So by guarding against that, players can do really well. And it's a good habit as flyers are going to be more prevalent. Um, I've made a list already in this new edition that has three beasts of nature and the avatar of the father. But as you're seeing giants gaining special rules and you're seeing flying monsters and dragons going down in points, I think practicing your just overall practicing Layering your lines is going to be really important in this new edition. And so I have some predetermined strategies for the list, specifically with deployment. And I think it's good for every player to have at least one set build. Because it'll be game three or four. You could have been drinking in the morning. You could just be exhausted. In some games, you really just play on autopilot. So having the ability to just do a set deployment where you know where 90% of your army is going to go can save you time and can really help. So what I like to do, I took the combat groups idea from way back when listening to Jesse Cornwell's List Builder Studio. So my typical deployment, I like to do Lycans and Beasts of Nature on either flank. One with the Druid, one with the Moon Pie. The Druid gets the one where there's any heal or the flank that I'm going to push. And the Moon, moon Pie usually gets um, the tokens if it's pushed and we're going to hold. The Spirit Walkers will go to the middle or towards a flank to project threat to allow my flanks to move up. And the forest shamblers can go wherever I want to push as well. Um, sometimes they'll go in the middle, and I can put beasts of nature behind the forest shamblers so they can scout up, fly behind the um, forest shamblers in either hop lines or get in advantageous positions because um, they can't be charged through the forest shamblers. Some people can look at a map, and they can look at every opposing army in every game, and they can tailor the deployment to match it. But I know specifically at Masters, where it is four game or was four games in one day, having just something where you know already where something is going to go, and you're just dropping a couple of pieces differently to adjust um, can really pay dividends. And I highly recommend having that because sometimes you'll just be tired. <laughs> and if you're trying to do everything from scratch and come up with a new strategy every game, you're going to wear yourself out, and it's going to be really tough to do that. Well, you're always <laughs> forgiving too because you can redeploy so quickly. Yes, that's the other good thing. If somebody gets first turn and pushes a flank and they start to redeploy, hopefully if I've put myself in a good position and there's, I haven't walled myself in with um, impassable terrain, I can also just go, nope, and move everything 18 to 20 inches back to a flank that's a little bit more forgiving and leave a beast of nature or moon pie behind as kind of an insurance policy in case they want to try to turn the corner. There's something that can give them a rear charge and kind of dissuade them from doing that. So it has some combat strategies, um, so just basic ones, right? If you're going to get charged, try to get charged in the woods. Um, heal is very important in it. 
use the beast of nature against anything that has cavalry or that can get disordered or wavered. So 15, 17 units cavalry stand out. I will say in this new edition, there is a lot more fury. Half-breeds are gaining fury. There's a lot more Pathfinder around, so they won't always be able to rely on that. Um, but it is something when the opportunity presents itself. Those are the targets that the Beast of Nature usually go after, trying to disorder and waver certain units so the rest of the elements can come in. So what uh, units do you think are the best performers in the army? Specifically from Masters, I think my best addition to my old list were the four Shamblers. Every game, they had a purpose, and every game they contributed. Whether it was against Jeff O'Neill, they stood in the forest and held up his line of three hordes of rabble um, in a woods for two crucial turns, because um, dash 14 and defense 5 are always handy. Or they carried tokens or sat on objectives. I think that they were something that I kind of added in towards last minute to the list. And I was really happy that they were there. And I'll definitely include a regiment of four shamblers in all of my herd lists moving forward. What units are more situational in your list? I'd have to say the Lycans. Some games, they really contribute. But other games, they're a liability and a really expensive one. So 15, 17, defense 4 is rough. And a lot of people already, with the rise of ogres and large infantry, are going to start planning for killing 15, 17 units. And the fact their defense 4 is rough. So they're critical for unlocks and for list construction, but some games I'll either use them too aggressively or somebody spikes a roll and you lose 270 points and they die turn two. So they're more situational, but still an important part. Right. So, so they're a big part of your threat projection, but you know they're they're the epitome of the glass hammer that herd mm. play, like the style of herd that you play. So you mentioned certain scenarios are a problem for you and. What do you think the army's strengths are scenario-wise? So the movement-based ones, um, raise, salt, invade, pillage, loot are really good ones for me. Um, also the bluff token ones, which sometimes we forget are scenarios, but they're actually pretty decent at those because you have the ability to redeploy if you're like, oh, whoops, that per- that, that's the that, zero point token. That's worth nothing. I shouldn't yeah. be here with all the speed 9 and 10 in your army. And notice all of those were ones that we played at Masters. Uh, ones that I'm not good at, control, dominate, push, and loot. Loot's kind of 50-50. Sometimes it's really good, uh, but depending on the terrain and the opponent's army can be bad. So we didn't play, you know, as I mentioned before, controller dominate at Masters. And drawing uh, Jeff Swan, drawing Travis Tim, I was able to get pillage and was able to get salt the earth and raise and ones that were a little bit more advantageous or gave me a fighting chance because if it had been controller dominated, it would have been a very serious uphill battle. Well, yeah, and swapping a beast of nature for a Scorchwing Horde gives you a little bit more mobile high unit strength, right? Right. That will help mitigate that a little bit. Yeah, because one thing reflecting upon that was that had I gotten any of those scenarios, I most likely would have lost. So I need some elements in my army that can give more unit strength uh, while still uh, contributing from range. Um, Also, clearing opponent's chaff is something my list doesn't do very well, so that kind of gives at least something to attempt to waver or get rid of Jeff. So scenario-wise, those are your strengths and weaknesses. Do you think there are any good or bad matchups for your list, like (laughs) army-wise? Well, you know how it is whenever it's your own army. You know a ton of bad matchups. So um, the ones that jump right out are armies with Surge and Fearless. I play against our friend Chris DeGroe all the time um, with his Empire of Dust, and he 
kills me. And I didn't play against any of them at Masters. Um, so I think that Tom's list or Mike Grant's list would have been really tough for me to deal with as well, Adam Ballard's, just because I don't have the amount of crushing strength to break through a lot of the defense five monsters that they bring. Um, and there's no waiver in those armies. Plus, if I try to hop somebody's lines, they can surge into me. Um, and there's drain life, because why not? So all the things that I don't want to see combined into one army, that's a really tough matchup for Herd. They have mounted characters such as vampires that can sit the flyers down and amazing resiliency across the board. So I think overall, taking a look at the meta, right, Alpha Strike in general is taking a bit of a hit specifically. So there's more Pathfinder, you know, with the Brocks and a lot of the cavalry options. Now, you know, they're having the ability to gain Pathfinder. There's more Fury across the board, such as Abyssal Halfbreeds. Fearless units, such as Tortured Souls, are getting better. And there's an item that gives Ensnare against Flyers. So I think that part of the Alpha Strike will take a bit of a hit, um, but I think it's still very feasible and still very dangerous. But something that people have to take with a grain of salt and realize that it's going to be matchup dependent if you choose to make a Alpha right. Strike uh, leading army. So what do you think? What army would you pick if you had to face any I, army? I would pick Night Stalkers. The last Masters before this, I played against them three times. They have little shooting, um, so just Lightning Bolt, which we do get cover against. We outrange them, so playing uh, Herd, all of our stuff is mostly faster than theirs. They have generally low defense, um, but since the Herd has no shooting, really, in this list only has the Scorch Wings, I'm not losing a lot by the points that they're paying for Stealthy across the board. Mm -hmm. So generally, they have low defense, and so that does benefit for the Alpha Strike. And since they took away the Surge, there's no way for the Night Stalkers to really deal with armies that get behind their lines uh, without mind screeches. So that all said, you have your you know your alpha build, your <laughs> first build for Clash of Kings 22. What what do you, like? What else are you excited to, to try out with uh, the herd going forward? So my third list that I've also made is kind of a bag of hammers list. So I really want to try just a back to basics chaff and hammers approach. The Longhorns giving that rally. Tribal Spears, one with Sharpness, one with Fury, um, the new Stampede, some Spirit Walkers with Elite. And I think one of the benefits of Herd is that we have Harpies and Forest Shamblers. So we have two of the best Chaff pieces in the game. And so using those to the advantage with just a line of Chaff and then some really good, efficient Hammers in the back supported by Bane Chant and some Dread. The Longhorn Rally upgrade is an interesting one, and I'm interested to see how that plays out. I'm going to be watching Sam Sohn and Garcia's list because he's brought a couple troops of them to use that rally bubble, mm. and I'll be really interested to see how well that does. I like the Longhorn Rally upgrade because it gives you a little bit more flexibility with the rally support. It's not tied to a monster or hero slot like it is with a lot of armies. It's more of the Ratkin style where it's tied to units. So you don't, you aren't going to be tied to having one source of rally or two sources of rally in the army. It's going to, you'll be able to spread it out kind of like how in Salamanders you have Ancients providing inspiring or, you know, Order of Redemption in Brotherhood being inspiring. It's an <laughs> interesting way to have a support unit that doesn't need to get unlocked. And I hope it's something we see more of in the future because I think it's a really cool interaction to not just rely on shrines and individuals for your buffs, but have them attached to certain units. I think is a really cool direction to take the game. Yeah, and not necessarily with respect to a formation. It's just a new buff, which is I think is going to help. And like you said, like the herd 
needs a little bit of nerve. They lost a little bit of heel. So having another, another bump of nerve or two can go a long way. Yeah, and that is the reason to take the stampede, right, is to get that huge yeah. nerve bump. And I wonder, you know, we see a lot of wind blast and, you know, certain others, mind fog that are attached to units. Why Wind blast being the most prevalent. I wonder if some of the units in the future that they create will have some of these scorched earth or um, some of the new spells um, attached to them as a reason yeah. to. Yeah, that would be that would be something very cool to look forward to. Mr. Randall, you are an unapologetic elf general, longstanding. <laughs> it's true. So how will you give us a bit of a background on your general approach to elves and how you have adapted it? for Clash of Kings 22. Sure. I have a chance to publicly humiliate myself with some elves early. I have been was invited to do a little showcase tournament on Universal Battles, so I tried to update my Master's List, General 3rd Edition Elf List for that. I generally sort of look at elves as a... I mean, they're obviously an elite army, so I try to lean into their strengths so much that it overcomes any possible weaknesses. And to me, movement 10 and shooting is just where their strengths are. So to take that into a new edition, or a new Clash of Kings, I was focused on what happened to their shooting and what what, what was affected on their you know speed 10 hammers and, and mid-level flyers. So in doing that, I have developed this new list, which is reflective of my old list, but it, it almost leans more into those two elements than even my master's list. Um, and, I, and I guess that, that makes sense to just lean into the description of the list at this point. So for this tournament, I, I decided to try a list without allies. It, it's always, I mean, allies can fix problems and lists, but as something of a showcase and, and just for myself trying to figure out what the army does well in the new edition, I, I eliminated my lovely heart piercers and unicorn uh, for this version. So that left me with uh, starting with a Horde of Palace Guard uh, with the Fury item, two regiments of the Kinder Archers who are once again functional, a regiment of Glade Stalkers, a regiment of Forest Shamblers, uh, two units of Dracon Riders, one with the Chant of Hate, and one with Pathfinder, a Lord on Dracon with the Trickster's Wand a second Lord on Dracon, and then what Keith Conroy affectionately refers to as the Duracell, which is now the Duracell Plus, uh, because we have three Archmages. The first one has Conjure, Staff, Bane Chant, 2, and Lightning Bolt 5. The second one has Lightning Bolt 5. The third one has the Amulet of the Fireheart, Lightning Bolt 5, and Alchemist Curse 4. And then I've also added in Nimue Waydancer. A lot of efficient shooting. And a lot some, of efficient shooting. And some very effective hammers. That is essentially the you know secret sauce behind my very obvious elf lists. So I mean, shoot just it. breaking it into shoot it and then hit it. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> um, which basically breaks it into the two elements of the army are shooting and hammers. So when you have 24-inch range shooting. That's efficient. You can reach a ton of the board. You know, all the Archmages have an effective 30-inch range. Gladestalkers have an effective 30-inch range. I mean, the Archers are still hitting on fives if they move. There's no cover. 
So the ability of that sort of core shooting platform, either combined or spread apart, to cover and put pressure on a lot of the board was effective prior to this edition. And I think with the additions to Magic is more effective. Nimue with the 20-inch move and the fireball having shattering and cloak of death can just really put a focus of damage on, on your opponent, on a specific point of your opponent's lines. Oftentimes, you'll struggle with high defense, so having that Alchemist Curse add on there can really put some damage on high defense units, which you hope are lower nerves, so you can, you can hit them. And then the Dracon sort of, you know, they, they serve a cover role where they're out there protecting the shooting base and projecting threats. So the theory behind it is there's a line across the table, and this is where I can hurt you. Um, and that's a very wide part of the board. And then the Palace Guard is a kind of a third edition thing, and the, they are kind of a mobile hammer, which, which is the closest thing to an anvil I have on the list. So what are the big changes for the list going into Clash of Kings 22? Well, the big changes partially are archers are now a functional unlock. Pre-Halpies, it was really hard to find a functional unlock in the Elven Army. Post-Halpies, it was, you know, Glade Stalkers and Dracon Riders and maybe your Horde of Palace Guard. Um, now, 140 points for a regiment of archers is, is a reasonable middle point regiment that can effectively cause damage for six turns and you know they can't take a punch like they used to be able to but they're they're still a a valuable unlock which allows you to bring in the utility that the new spells special character and the archmages have uh, on the unit the uh, the other change is lowering the price of the dracon lords a little bit brought them from like a borderline functional unit to a 170 points for Lord on Dracon when you compare it to 205 points for a Beast of Nature was a little bit tough to justify. 160 points, you can kind of get two of them for a, for one dragon. So having the extra utility with the second Dracon Lord to go, you know, chaff up or grab tokens, that was a big switch for me. I feel a little bit naked without a dragon, but I think there's there's more utility having more fast unit or unit strength units. And then Nimue obviously is a big. Nimue is a big add. She, I mean, she really. When you make Fireball Shattering and she has Fireball Ten, and the Cloak of Death, if she can do one point of damage with from within six inches, that's a three point shift to Nerve, uh, which can really start adding up when you are shooting at those 15, 17, 15, 17 units. And if you start spiking damage, you know she can start. If she can sneak her way into someone's backfield, she can start deleting units towards the the back part of the game. And really affect affect your shooting. And, and then you know early on she's got some heal, and late she's got some wind blast. So she's 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 quite the toolbox. She's expensive as 150 points, but she's she's quite the toolbox. We've said the word a lot with respect to shooting, and elf shooting is efficient. So other than efficient damage output, like early on, what do you think this army does well? It's flexible. You know, like if you're incredibly fast and your shooting can be redirected at the drop of a dime you don't have to be perfect with your placement and deployment obviously it helps um, and dracon's losing nimble made it a little bit harder uh, but the ability to keep the pressure on 
from all the way across the board consistently to get around terrain, to mitigate cover, and you know force your opponents into less optical attack lanes. It just it, it forces your opponent to react to you from the beginning of the game. I'll add to that. It gives you so many bad choices because (laughs) while you're deciding, right, like, what do I want to do in this game? How am I going to engage? Oh, well, while I'm thinking of it, while I'm trying to maneuver from to position, I'm getting shot. And if I run forward, I'm going to get charged by Drakens. So there's not really many good choices. And it puts you on a very dangerous clock. Yes. Right. Literally and and figuratively. And so, like, the elves were very effective at doing this in second with you know, big shooting blocks. And now it's just like a pinprick from multiple different uh, shooting units that can react almost as fast as you can move. Uh, so bum rushing can like you can if bum rushing doesn't work, you get picked apart. But if you hang back, it's just a matter of time. It's I mean, I think others have compared it to the classic like Wood Elf build from Warhammer Fantasy Battle, where it's just a, a cloud that you can't get to. Right. And an amorphous blob of arrows and dragons. So what does it struggle with? That's what it does well. What does it not do well? Sure. I mean, like an amorphous blob, uh, you know, it doesn't hold terrain particularly well. It doesn't hold the field. It puts pressure on the field, but you can't, you know, you can't, you can't hold the ground with air cover, right? And this army is essentially all air cover, uh, with the exception of the palace guard, who are, you know, remarkably fragile. Uh, for an accord that expensive. So if I have to be somewhere at a specific time, uh, not the best. Right. So the dominates, even things like loot, where like I'm grabbing something and slowed down, uh, not super great. Um, so if I have a lot of time to figure out where I need to be and for you to figure out where I need to be, it's, it's better um, than if I... Everybody knows I have to be here at this time. So we've talked about, you know, battle groups and predetermined kind of like deployment. Do you have any, do you use that, those strategies with this army? I mean, sometimes, you know, generally you can say shooters in the middle, uh, fast stuff on the sides, you know, cover all the lanes. But the same token, it's so flexible that I know, you know, Keith was saying, have your set deployment. I tried not to have my set deployments. It's really obvious that you're going to put your shooters in the middle. So you don't like your opponent's going to say, well, I don't want to put my vulnerable units there because they're going to get shot to shit. So I don't want to pigeonhole myself into saying, I'm going to put my entire firebase in the middle. I don't even always put my firebase together. As long as things are mobile and can cover, and with those 24, 34, 20 inch threat bubbles, it's very flexible to say, yeah, normally this person would be over here with this unit, but if I need him there, he can get there in two turns. Um, so it allows me to not fall into patterns if possible. The pure flexibility is like it's you know your elves, your speed six, but but you're also steady aim shooting yeah. units. So basically, you have you know like you're saying, thirty inch threat range gives you a lot of leeway with deployment so that's deployment do you have any combat strategy yeah i mean it's it's a glass hammer you know like if you're once you're in combat uh, you want to make sure stuff dies which all again leans back to from the start you need to have 
a good idea of what your shooting priority is. You're, you're usually are always going to be outnumbered. If you're not outnumbered because you're facing another elite army, if you let them get up on you too quickly, I have three combat units and they suddenly have six in charge range and that's a problem. Uh, so target priority is the biggest thing that helps this list function. Uh, and it helps early for me to funnel my opponents uh, and it helps late because if my Dracons are going into something that doesn't have four to five wounds and isn't going to die on one charge, that's a problem. Right. So yeah, it's not an army that, like you said, doesn't need to want to be in at one place at a specific time. It also doesn't want to get stuck. It wants to keep moving and moving forward and taking things off the board. Right. Or forcing the opponent to move out of the way, essentially. Absolutely. So what are your top performers in the in the list? I mean, I have, I don't know what that adds up to. It's 500-ish points. It might be more now. In characters. And they need to function so and they often do um separate or together they put out like reliable damage on defense five or any other unit and they are targeted sometimes and you know if you're targeting my individuals okay uh, i need my unit strength and if they're not targeted okay because they you know i might end the game with some forest shamblers and my mages but that could be fine you know, that could work out. So, you know, they are reliable. They're the, the they're hard to kill, and uh, they're incredibly flexible. So as, as a group, and especially with Nimue added, that added point of just being able to, oh, hey, I'm now behind you, and you can't really do anything about it, but I'm just going to be cloak of death in you and, you know, hammering units. Uh, it, it's It's puts a lot of pressure on your opponent to sort of manage that when it's really easy and flexible on you because individuals, as everybody knows, are the easiest unit in the game to get where they need to be. What are the units that are more situational or that don't always pull their weight? So the, the change to Dracon's taking Nimble away while I recognize months after the fact, years after the fact, was totally necessary, has, you know, it forces an elf driver to know where they need to be two or three turns in advance as opposed to, oh, didn't want to be there. I'm just going to back up and back up five inches and, and change my facing. That change in strategy skill set is still something that, that I find myself struggling with at times. And so, you know, if your 290-point unit gets caught, like, okay, well, you're not super effective anymore when you're just, you got punched by gargoyles and now there's the second line is coming and you're um, So that can be trouble. Um, and then with third, less with the Clash of Kings, having the Palace Guard Horde. Infantry Hordes have never really been in my wheelhouse, so I, you know, they're they're very effective and they're and they're super important to the list. You know, there are games where they're like they're hanging out, claiming a table sixth, and they sit there and wave the whole game, and that's, that can be fine. But it's also 290 points of like, well, this is stupid. Um, and then oftentimes, you know, they go in, they get one good punch, hopefully not just on a chap unit, and then it's like, oh, this is a defense for a horde, and they're going to die. Um, so they can be situational. It, 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 Dracons can still win you the game. It's, it, I find it less often that a palace guard come in and, like, affect the game so heavily that I'm excited about them. That's fair. 
Yeah, it's definitely a, a shift because yeah, second edition elves didn't really have to de deal with infantry hordes that were not holding bows. Right, right. I mean, some people effectively use tall spears, um, and some people effectively use palace guard regiments in second, but it was they were pretty uncommon. And mm -hmm. you know, backing up three inches and shooting is not a particularly difficult uh, strategy. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, that, that so to uh, Keith Conroy's point earlier, game four on day one, and you just like want an easy army to play. <laughs> pick, pick the Keith Randall list and just back, you know, scout forward an inch so you can shoot on turn one, and then back up three inches every turn shooting, and then charge with Dracons on turn five or six. There you go. It folks. sounds really easy. It's true. Profit. <laughs> Profit. Yes. <laughs> um, so speaking of that actually playing the game what scenarios do you like you've kind of mentioned you don't want to be somewhere on time so obviously mm -hmm. stuff like you know invade and dominate probably doesn't play to your strengths absolutely and those are two tough ones you know i don't want to have to be going forward and i mean i'm quick so i can get some unit strength over the board um at the end of the game but like if we're fighting on my 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 half of the board the whole game it, it can be come down to I'm the one like on the clock, which is not where I want to be. Um, conversely, you know, pillage, where I just got to be there at the end, you know, and I get over there eventually, get everywhere I need to be eventually, is good. Raise can be can be good. I do have a lot of units that can sort of run over and just clip that objective token late if I need to, while punishing you coming across. All the shifty Heidi scenarios have been have been good. Because again, I can be where I need to be, and if I, someone pulls off a, a, a zero, it's like, well, moving on. So those were those were good, but yeah, it's the it's the loots, plunders, dominates, invade that get trickier. Are there any army matchups that are troublesome for this list? Honestly, I've always had the biggest issue with the mirror match. Elven strengths are match up really well against elven weaknesses. The army does melt to effective counter shooting and. At this point, I don't think there's any better effective counter shooting. So, a lot of the mirror match comes down to okay, who has more shots, and right. then it can get kind of painful if you're if you don't have the shots. The same token, high defense and heal can be difficult if you're lumbering and slow, but I can only put one or two wounds instead of six or seven wounds on you a turn. That's a problem. I think there's a potential for high defense heal, veil of shadows armies that would just be like, well, this is this is a waste of my time. There was the one second edition character that gave that stealth bubble in the undead army, and I was like, "Well, this sucks," because <laughs> yeah. um, I can't hurt you, and I can't get around you, and you'll just get to me by turn four and tear me apart. So, so those can be a problem. You know, alternatively, defense four, trash meta, even you know, super elite alpha armies can all be pretty good to to play against because if i can pick off two or three of your hammers and then just go hammer to hammer and i'm usually faster that can be that can be a better to play with you know some of the msu large infantry kind of kind of armies typically over ogres if they're not all siege breakers are are, are pretty good because you know speed six is still kind of slow and 15 17 you can waver that pretty easily and then you know if i had to pick like a Trident Realm army is always it's always fun to play. Yeah, yeah. If you have any like non-piercing shooting or even just you know any volume shooting, Trident Realm 
is a good matchup. Right. And then, you know, you and you ensnare, but I still hit on threes normally, and I have a lead, so I'm still going to hit you right. 10 or 11 times, and I will wound you with every one of those. And... So this is the list that you're going to be running as your maiden voyage into Clash of Kings 22. What do you think, like, what do you see as other options going forward that you want to try out? I mean, I, I might drop in hard piercers on the unicorn again, just because adding that much more mobile lightning bolts um, is always nice. Alternatively, if I, I'm, there's, I've been kicking around the idea of dropping an archer regiment, one of the Dracon Lords, and adding some more Glade Stalker troops. Um, those things are really coin effective with 10 attacks and almost throwaway points at 130. So just adding that much more sort of mobile shooting early and putting more pressure on. Um, and alternatively, it's very possible that I'm overstating the effectiveness of efficient shooting and I'll have to to scale it back, you know, and, and do more of the scooting and, and charging late and having, you know, put a dragon back in or putting in a nimble cavalry unit just to just another unit that is there to do some damage mid to late game when all the shooting is, is tied up. So, you know, I think shooting is going to be more valuable, um, but I could be very wrong. Yeah, that actually that that nimble storm stormwind unit is an intriguing addition. Speed nine nimble cavalry yeah. is is pretty nice. I mean, my my concern with it is not my concern. My my objection to using it up front is once you get start getting close to that dragon horde points value, I might just as well just get a dragon horde. I mean, you lose nimble, but you gain so much more from it. So. If you want, I mean, if you're going for something like you want a third hammer in there, you know, that, that's an interesting option. Um, I just, I thought about, and I had put together a list for this tournament with it in it, and it just, it underperformed a little bit. So it might end up back in there, but. Well, thanks for uh, breaking down your list. And to both of you, that's a really great to get some insight into how people approach highly competitive list building. We just got a couple of quickfire questions to wrap things up. And what's your favorite army? Herd. Elves. Big surprise. What is your least favorite scenario? Control. Loot or plunder. What drives you creatively or competitively? Being part of a team in a club. Shout out to the Unplugged Gamers. Beating any member of the Sons of Vulcan. At any time. <laughs> when your opponent rolls snake, guys, drink. Uh, just sit there and smirk. <laughs> when you roll snake, guys, we're doomed. I, I mostly just mumble. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite hobby material or tool? Gorilla glue gel. The G-Dub mold line remover tool is life-changing. What is your biggest gaming pet peeve? Inconsistency with marking bases, cock dice, or allowing takebacks. Hard agree. If you had to replace miniature wargaming with another hobby, what would it be? Disc golf. Drinking, I don't know. I, I would have a very empty life without miniature wargaming. <laughs> <laughs> what other miniature wargame would you not ever want to play? Uh, War Machine and Hordes. It's a cautionary tale for every other war game out there. 
about expanding too quickly. And Ninth Age for me, I'm I don't necessarily appreciate that All community, right. but I don't have to go into it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you had a romantic evening with Ronnie Renton, what would you whisper sweetly in his ear? Take away the potion of the caterpillar and don't name Armada after a game that already exists. I think I'd just say thanks for saving Rank and Flank Fantasy Wargaming. That's so romantic. It is. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again, Keith, for uh, joining us. For this wonderful, we're an interchangeable uh, individual at this point. <laughs> I will point out that two out of two Keiths take forest shamblers in their list. So, folks at home, take a look at those trees. They're <laughs> worth they're worth including in your army. That's going to do us for tonight. And until next time, Keith, Keith Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on. Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.